Well, before I get into the message part today, I want to just uh, take a moment to, to give a shout out to a unique couple. Um, on your bulletin app, you might see right at the bottom of your bulletin app if you have that, it uh, talks about celebrations and different anniversaries. And um, I don't normally do this, but this week is the 70th anniversary for George and Marge Getz. And I wanted to just highlight that. Yeah, you can applaud. Now, I highlight that, and I'm doing it intentionally here in the sermon part, because this is the only part of the service we record, and they are at Diamond House. They can't come out to services anymore, and so they listen online. So we're giving a shout-out to you, George and Marge, and uh, saying congratulations, and that's just really uh, amazing. Just this last week, they celebrated 70 years. So I want to just pray. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. I thank you, Lord, for um, the faithfulness of people like George and Marge who have... uh, served and loved each other, but also served and loved the church and your kingdom's work, Lord. And so we just pray blessing on them today and this, uh, this year. And uh, thank you for so many others as well who have celebrated unique and significant milestones like this. And so God, we thank you that we are a body that we can just encourage one another in this and, and prod one another on in how to live out our faith. And I pray that even today, as we hear uh, from your word in James again, that you would continue to challenge and speak to us and give us attentiveness and responsiveness by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth that you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure that you've hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You've spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not even resist you. Wow. Who speaks words like that? Um, Maybe is it Bernie Sanders? Uh, He sometimes says angry things to rich people. Um, I don't know. No, it's actually James. It is James 5, verse 1 to 6. It is the Word of God, James speaking by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, speaking to the church, speaking to believers, speaking to people who need to hear sometimes hard things by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when you hear those words, you kind of go, wow, ouch, like that's, that is pretty intense. Glad he's not talking to me, right? Or you. Well, we'll see about that today. So we're still in this series in the book of James, and it's called Big Faith. And it's a, a book that for many people I know, it's a, a favorite of many because it's very practical. James is also very pointed, and one of the beautiful things about preaching through a book of the Bible is that you don't kind of get to choose necessarily where you skip over. And so, James 5, verses 1 to 6, and I encourage you to turn there and stay there. We'll be dwelling on that. Those words that I just read are are some pretty pointed and intense words. But uh, this message, in many ways, builds off the theme of humility from the past couple of weeks. And uh, 
Don and James Penner were, were speaking in the last couple of weeks from James chapter 4, and one of the themes that comes out there is this theme of humility. And, and last week, uh, James Penner defined humility as not thinking necessarily less of yourself or even thinking of yourself less often, but more so rather to think of yourself rightly. That humility is actually taking an honest assessment of yourself, an honest evaluation of yourself. And it makes me think of Romans chapter 12, verse 3, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's talking about spiritual gifts. And one of the things that he says there is he says, uh, do an honest evaluation of yourself. And so it's, not, it's this idea that we don't think too highly nor too lowly of ourselves, but we do an honest evaluation of ourselves. And so in many ways, that is a good definition of humility, of how we are to think about ourselves. And so it's important to think about ourselves rightly, also in this area of finances and money. You know, there's a, there's a bank ad that you might be familiar with that often goes, their tagline is, is that you're richer than you think. And I'd argue that that is probably true for probably every one of us here. And as we look at this text, we need to be careful that we don't dismiss it or just think of it as relating to other people because, yeah, it's, it's those people. But that rather that we would allow it to unsettle us and to speak to us through God's Spirit. Because our tendency is, and we know this, our tendency when it comes to finance and wealth is that we always compare up, don't we? Like we can always find people who we look at and we assume or think or understand that they, well, they have more money than us, so they're, they're richer than we are, so we never put ourselves in that category. But we very seldom compare down. Like we, we don't typically do that. And so we, we often, because we do that, we think, well, well, we're not wealthy, we're not rich because we can see those others. And it's interesting when you think about it, the fact that Canada is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And the World Bank in 2014, I think it was, had us at number 12 in the world of the 12th richest country in the world in terms of how they measure that. I'm not fully sure. But in the last number of years, we've kind of dropped a few places, but we are still in the top 20 of the richest countries uh, in the world. And what's also true is that I could say with confidence that the vast majority of the people in this room today, the vast majority of the people in our church at all of our congregations would be in the top 10% of wage earners in the world. You would be. In fact, probably higher. And yet we never think of ourselves as rich, but we always know somebody who is, right? And so I think a word for us that James would have for us is let's have humility in the sense of let's take an honest assessment of our wealth today of what God would say to us. And so uh, being on this topic yesterday, I had to do some research, some Costco research. And so Costco is a dangerous place to go, especially when you're teaching on this topic. And, uh, and uh, anybody who buys that much stuff at Costco is definitely rich. And so uh, Lisa was a little appalled and she said, make sure that you say that this was for multiple households. It wasn't just for us. And then I looked at that picture and I thought, look at all those chips on top. That's terrible. Like, what kind of buying habits do you have? Like, this is awful. And, and then when I walked in, I mean, I love the first part of it where it's all the electronics. I like shiny new things. And then there was this fridge that was there that has this massive screen on it that's like this huge iPad that you can talk to and it interacts with you and it tells you about your day. And it was only $5,000, and it didn't fit in my cart. Um, but I digress. The original context of this 
is found if we go back just to James chapter 4, at the end of James chapter 4, what we've been looking at in the last couple of weeks, we see some of the context that precedes the words that James says that we just read already today in chapter 5. And I think, again, it's important always to look at Scripture in context. And so in this section, at the end of chapter 4, we see that James is talking about the brevity of life. And he's talking about uh, the challenge to not have arrogance in terms of being in total control. But that God is in control. That you are not as in control as you think you are. And this section is not talking about that it's bad to do business or bad to make money. It's even fine to make profit. We see that in other places in Scripture as well. But what James is talking about is not trusting your money. And not trusting and putting all of your confidence in your money. And not having so much confidence in your scheduling and your planning and your business transactions that those become the things that you trust in. This, it's this challenge against self-sufficiency. And so that's what James is talking about in this section that precedes. And we know that big faith, as we've called this series, is about tangible actions in our lives. It's about this truth that, that our faith needs to be lived out in the everyday expressions of our lives, in our, in our lifestyle patterns, in our purchasing choices, in how we spend our time, our money, and so on and so forth. So sound doctrine about how we view and understand God needs to align with godly living. So it needs to be expressed together. They need to be connected. That's what James is all about, is connecting these two things of how we think and how we live and that they go together. So the point in this context at the end of chapter 4 is not that doing business is bad or transactions are bad, but that these aren't. you are not as in control as you think you are. We need to hold them loosely and submit to God and say, God, you are the one ultimately in control. And to have humility about that as well. Then there's that verse 17, which for me is always so challenging. Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. There's a verse that will haunt us and challenge us. And especially as we come to this topic of money that we're talking about here today. So as we look at James chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, in those verses that I read earlier, James is moving now and making a shift from talking to the merchant class to now the landowner class of people. So at the end of chapter 4, it was the merchant class, these people who do transactions and who are involved in business. And now he's speaking to others in the church in that setting. And so this would have been a church not dissimilar to ours where you have people of all kinds of different places on the socioeconomic scale. And so James is speaking to people who, some of which are very poor and some of which are very rich. And so he's now speaking to those who are in the landowner class and who have people who work for them and even slaves who work for them. And, and he's talking about that. And again, the primary fault that James is making of these people is not that they have money. It's not that their wealth is a sin. It's that they are trusting it more than they are trusting God. And he uses language that they are hoarding it. This money that you accumulate at the expense of their workers or the poor. And so it's this irrational desire for and trust in our wealth that's at issue here. And the unwillingness to use this wealth to alleviate the pain and suffering of others, and even to pay people fair wages. And so James's pointed rebuke and his prophetic word is that these people are in grave danger because of their attitudes and their handling of money. It's causing them to ignore God and rather trusting their money instead. It's causing them to ignore their sisters and brothers who are struggling and rather living in selfishness and self-indulgence. And he's saying that they will experience God's judgment because of this. And so again, it's important for us to understand that James is not 
condemning wealth. He's not condemning the fact that they have money, not at all. He's condemning the attitude that comes with it, where this wealth becomes the thing that you trust. And so he's challenging and rebuking this lifestyle and this attitude towards wealth that, that deadens the wealthy towards those in need. And even more so, causes you to live in excess and only for your own pleasures, while even their workers and others in the church have desperate need. And so we see again in verse 5 and 6, those pointed words. He says, you spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You've condemned and killed innocent people who do not even resist you. Pointed words. So James is consistently taught that our relationship with God shapes character. And character influences and even determines our actions and perhaps more than anything else, our attitudes towards other people. And so again, this truth that faith is not merely our beliefs. Faith is our actions at work. And a lifestyle that reflects thankfulness, generosity, and caring for other people. You know, we've said a number of times throughout this series that James often sounds a lot like his brother that he grew up with named Jesus. The one who became, as we see at the introduction to the book of James, the one who became this brother of his who now he's like, he is the Lord and Messiah. And James says he has become a servant of him because he believes that this is God. This is the Messiah. This is the one who has come to rescue us. And so James starts to sound a lot like him in different ways. And we read James 5, verse 2 and 3, and he says this, Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags, and your gold and silver have become worthless. The very wealth that you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. And this treasure that you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. And it makes me think of Matthew chapter 6. And, and sometimes you can just take these sections of James and just kind of put them up against some of the teachings of Jesus. And they just have so much similarity and they have a familiar ring to it. And so in Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching about wealth. And he says this, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And Jesus goes on and he teaches over and over again about money and about wealth. And he teaches parables about it. And, and it's the topic that Jesus teaches about more than any other topic in his ministry here on earth. And why is that? Why, why was money so important to Jesus? Why did he teach on it so often? Because he knew that there was a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and how we handle money. That, that these Things go together, that our faith and actions go together. So I think James plagiarized Jesus. Well, it's not plagiarism. He's, he was discipled by Jesus. So he's been influenced by Jesus. And now James is reflecting on those words and articulating them by the power of the Holy Spirit in a unique and, and new way as he writes these letters to the, to the people. And so Jesus here in Matthew 6 is not, again, teaching that earthly treasures are inherently bad or evil. He's saying that they just won't last. Their loss will either come during our life when it eventually ends up in a landfill or when we die and we can't take it with us. Like there's really no other options. 
when it comes to these earthly treasures that we can sometimes put so much money into and so much care into and we, we hold on to so tightly, I mean, there's really only those two options. It's going to end up in a landfill or it's going to be left behind when you actually die. Because we know that you can't take it with you, but Jesus is teaching that you actually can send it ahead of you if you invest in kingdom things, things that have eternal value. As you invest in the lives of other people and store up your treasures in heaven. So James is greatly influenced by Jesus. The Apostle Paul is also greatly influenced by Jesus. And Paul too, he writes to the churches about money and about financial wealth and about how to think about it and how to live in that way. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you want to turn there, Paul has a similar warning as he too learned much from Jesus, as I said, about what it means to live a godly life and to have true faith in Jesus. And in this passage, he's pointing out to... To learn, to learn to live with contentment. And so Paul is articulating, you need to learn to live with contentment no matter if you have much and you have lots or if you have very little. And that learning this contentment is in itself great wealth. And there's incredible freedom in that when you can actually find contentment at whatever place in life that you are at. So in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 to 10, Paul says this, but people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and have pierced themselves with many sorrows. So you see the language there that Paul's getting at? He's talking about people who have these harmful desires, who have this love of money, no matter how much money they have. That's not the point. It's their love of money and their longing for it, this Craving for money. And that's the danger point. And then further on, Timothy goes on and says in verse 17 to 19, or Paul says to Timothy, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust their money, which is so unreliable, but their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Always be ready to share with others. By doing this, they'll be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. And so again, Paul is teaching the churches, very similar to James, learning from Jesus, teaching them about what true wealth looks like and how fleeting the things of this earth are. And again, it's important for us to remember, even Paul here, similar to James, he's he's not saying that wealth is wrong or wealth is a sin or having money is wrong. That's not the point. It's not. God blesses people in that way in different ways. The point is, is that the desire and the dependence and the pursuit of wealth over the needs of others is wrong. It's when we step on other people in order to acquire more and accumulate more and when we want to put our trust in that. That's the challenge that is being given in each of these texts. And he talks about people who want to get rich. The love of money, they're eager for money. And when we put our hope in that wealth, rather than trusting in God. And so again, doctrine and lifestyle need to go together. And so what's our response? How do we kind of take a text like this that I would say very much applies to us? It is a very challenging rebuke. How do we hear it and allow it to change us? So that our actual faith and lifestyle can line up just a little bit more. 
And so I would argue that this text very much applies to us, even though it's very pointed in this original context. But how do we respond as individuals? How do we respond as a church? How do we respond if we are business owners or people who pay workers? There's something here for us, for each one of us. I would say, first of all, we need to take an honest assessment of ourselves. To just go through that exercise like we're being called to, to take an honest assessment that if this is humility, that we would have the humble posture of actually just doing an honest evaluation of ourselves. Not looking too highly or too lowly, but even in this area of finances, that we would look honestly. That we would allow this text to unsettle us. It unsettles me. Allow it to unsettle us. And also that as we assess, we are cautious and in and aware at least of how we are comparing. That we don't just compare up, but that we compare in different ways. Which is why I've always believed that it's so important for each one of us to be in different parts of the world where we see how different people live than we do here necessarily, at least in regions of Canada. So that we can compare in different ways. And then not to pretend that these texts, these rebukes, these warnings don't apply. Because we really are richer than we think. And so, we need to take an assessment. In the study guide this week, which you can also get on the bulletin app, where it's just a a small group study guide, at the end of it, I've put a place there where I've encouraged you to just sit down and actually do an honest evaluation of of where you're at in the area of finances when it comes to this text and some of the things that we've looked at here today. Where are the places that you're maybe stronger and that you're doing some good things? Where are places that you need work and you know, and what is it that you're actually doing? Sometimes I think we, we actually don't even take note of the things that we are doing. And so I'd encourage you to do that. And as I was even writing out that question, I thought, well, I, it's probably good if I do that myself. Um, and so I spent a little bit of time and I just wrote some things down. And I wrestled with whether to share this with you or not. And I tested it with a few people because my biggest concern is that it comes across as any kind of arrogance or pride. Forgive me if that is anything, because that's not the point. The point is an honest assessment and that we need to challenge and encourage one another in this. So I sat down and I thought about things that Lisa and I are involved with and and do and some of my own personal things. And here's a few things I wrote down. We're involved in systematic, regular tithing of 10% of our income to the local church. We do additional offerings to other kingdom ministries in different ways. We, We try to be spontaneous in terms of acts of generosity through the Spirit's prompting in our lives. We've been intentional about managing and eliminating debt. Twice uh, over the course of my life, I've gone through a year where I've committed uh, a year to not buying any clothes, just as an expression of choosing contentment. We try to share our home as much as possible with others. We support kids through compassion and world vision. We do a biannual review with our kids every two years or so in regards to our income, our savings, and our giving strategy in order to help disciple them in that. We're redoing our wills right now to have those up to date. I think that's part of it, and that's an important piece, and our kids should be worried. (laughs) And occasionally we share some of our financial condition with others for both encouragement and accountability and transparency. Now, when I go to the other side, I'm sure there's lots of things I could write, but I wrote down just a few areas to improve. I think these are areas that I could use some significant work. Managing a monthly budget could definitely improve a lot in how I do that. Creating more financial margin by living below our means. More faith risk-taking obedience in this area of giving. I mean, there's 
There's lots of other things that I could say of just, but my point is simply this, is we need to actually just pause and go, okay, God, help me to do an assessment. Where do I need to grow? What do I need to confess of? What do I need to change? And so there are areas in this that for me are some of my focal points for this year of to grow and to change in my own life. So secondly, how do we respond that we would actually manage debt and increase margin? Now, I understand this doesn't come directly out of this text. Uh, James isn't talking about debt specifically, but there is a definite connection here. That we need to live below our means in order for us to be able to give to other people as James talks about here. And it doesn't matter if we're in the top 10% or 5% or even 1% of wage earners in the world. But if we spend more money than we make, we are not rich. We are indebted. And we are bound. And so the amount of income that you make doesn't matter nearly as much as the financial margin you have in your life. And we lose the ability to give generously when we don't have any margin and we are indebted so highly. So this week as I was preparing this, I sent, I reached out to a friend, John Durant, who's part of this church and he works in the financial industry and I asked him for some insights and things that he thinks about and he very quickly sent me a whole bunch of things and just some of the research that he reflects on and here's a couple of comments that he sent me. He said, the majority of Canadians, about 53%, live paycheck to paycheck with almost no savings. And so literally, one missed paycheck or a layoff and life starts to unravel. Also in the research, it shows that more than half of Canadians spent more than they earned in the last 12 months. So over half Canadians spent more money than they earned in the last 12 months. A large portion, about a third, don't have any retirement savings either, which makes people very uncertain about the future and their current economic condition. And So even in financial monetary terms, being financially rich isn't as much about making a lot of money as it is about having financial margin, regardless of how much money you make. Because to have financial margin allows you to not be in debt and to be able to give. And so our debt is really significant for us to pay attention to, as is spending less than we make on a monthly basis. Another interesting point that that John um, mentioned was that those who make financial decisions in isolation alone are typically the ones that struggle the most. So there's a community element to it. There's a transparency element to it. There's a the element of actually talking to other people and being accountable to other people that actually helps you in this area, which I would agree. And then a third area that we can respond is to live generous lives. Just that we could live more generously. Because you see, to live a big faith is to do something. That's what James is teaching us over and over again. Where our beliefs and actions are working together. And so a question for you and for me is just how is God calling us to live more generously how is God calling us to respond do we have the financial margin to do that how can we create more capacity in our lives to respond spontaneously to the work of the Holy Spirit when God is inviting us to be generous in a certain situation how can we more systematically intentionally in a disciplined way put things into our lives that help us live generously you know there is so much opportunity to do good. And this is why it's really important for us as we read these texts to know that, that God isn't talking about the fact that wealth is bad or having this money is bad. It's how we, what is our attitudes towards it and how do we use it? It is a stewardship responsibility. And I know many people who are wealthy who have great joy in blessing other people and giving generously. 
And even in Proverbs, it talks about this fact that he who refreshes others, will they themselves be refreshed? And so there's this reciprocal thing that as we give to other people, as we care for other people, that it also has a great encouragement to us. And giving is a great antidote to some of the rebukes that James gives here in this text today. So how might we decrease our standard of living, decrease some of our purchasing choices, go to Costco less for me, um, so that we can actually do some things for the kingdom that give glory to God and not put our trust in money. You know, as I wrap up here, I just want to leave us with a few thoughts even for us corporately as a church. You know, we as a church are also needing to assess our own place in this. Corporately, how are we doing? Where is our actual reality? And many of you know, we've just recently sold this land just on this side of us here. And so we have cash now. We've been able to pay off our debt. What an amazing gift. But now we have a really significant stewardship responsibility. And I wrote in an email to the church just before Christmas that oftentimes money can do different things. It can cause apathy in our giving instead of giving because it's worship to God. It can cause division and conflict as we debate and battle over certain things. It can cause dependence on money rather than trusting in God on a regular basis. But instead, we need this sense of urgency that, that there is for the kingdom of God and for lost people. We need this sense of focus beyond ourselves and ability to be generous. So this week, uh, on Thursday, a little bit later this week, there was a smaller gathering of uh, different leaders from our church and some of our leadership teams from each of our sites and even some former leaders who've been a part of our church. And we're gathering together to actually just begin praying together and discerning and to do some of this assessment and say, God, where are we at? What is the condition of our heart? What are you challenging us about how we steward this financial resource and the many blessings that you've given us? How do we not become apathetic? How do we not become dependent on money, but we de- dependent on you? How do we still step out and live faith-filled obedience as a church? And so I'd encourage you, invite you to pray for this group that's going to be gathering. And it'll come out to the congregations in the months ahead in different ways and encourage you to be involved in that together with us. But I pray that we as a church would have big faith and that we would continue to grow in our generosity and our ability to make significant kingdom impacts by the way that we steward our money. And I pray that for us individually and corporately as God continues to challenge us in this area. So Lord, I thank You so much that Scripture is filled with all kinds of powerful words for us. And sometimes we hear words of hope and promise and encouragement and comfort. And sometimes we hear challenge and rebuke and conviction. And Lord, I pray for each one here today that I pray that nobody would hear any words of condemnation because that's of the enemy. But Lord, that they would be maybe words of conviction or encouragement to go in a different direction or make some different decisions. That's true for each one of us, Lord. And I, I pray that you by your Holy Spirit would speak to us. And God, I just pray that anything I said here today would not be prideful or arrogant in any way. But God, that you would help myself and each one of us to just take an honest assessment of ourselves before you and trust you and that you'd also help us to be um, more community with each other take risks and vulnerability and in sharing these things so that we can spur one another on in good deeds and in faithfulness 
So Lord, may You continue to challenge us. God, we are rich people. And God, You've entrusted us with much. And Lord, I pray for each one here that You would help us to gain even financial margin in our lives so that we have the capacity to be more generous to others. And would You help us and encourage us and continue to transform us in this way to have a bigger faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.